It was a rule of Moist and Adorabelle's household that the evening meal, if at all possible, was sacrosanct. No eating at their desks, no rush, but candles and silverware, as if it were always a special occasion. And a special occasion it was, the only time they could sit down face to face and just, well, be at least moderately married to each other. However, Adorabelle couldn't conceal her dismay about losing her husband again for yet another prolonged absence in a foreign country. Querm isn't that far away, Moist soothed, and once I get the local lads on side it won't be too bad. Adorabelle cleared her throat. Garçon! If there are lobsters, your lads will be known as Garçon. What? Garçon! It's Quermian. But don't worry, most of them speak Mokpokian. And you know why? Because none of us can be bothered to learn Quermian. Well, no matter what they're called, once the railway line's built, I'll probably be able to come home more often. He paused to take another mouthful of pie. By the way, Harry's just had a clax from the King of Lanka, asking if we could eventually run a line all the way to his kingdom, so that, and I quote, Lanka can take its rightful place on the world's stage. Don't underestimate that place, said Adorabelle. They've got witches up there. They fly up to Clax Towers and scrounge coffee off the lads. Well, at least one of them does, especially when the lads are young and the goblins aren't on shift. And then there are all the dwarfs up at Copperhead. I'm sure they could find a use for a railway. Moise made a face. The lads say no way. It's too steep, and anyway, the Lanka Bridge wouldn't take the weight of the engine. Sorry. But I suppose we could tell His Majesty that we'll send surveyors to take a look once the Querm line's complete. Moist put down his fork. But here we are, and it looks like for the first time in ages we have an evening free. What shall we do? Perhaps it might be a good idea to give the staff the rest of the evening off. And Adorabelle replied with a smile. Yes, what shall we do? It's... "'Simply mechanical,' said Ponder Stibbons over tea in the uncommon room at Unseen University. "'It just looks magical.' "'Shouldn't be allowed, then,' said the senior wrangler, spearing a whole pie with his fork. "'Looking magical is our business.' "'Well,' said Mustram Ridcully, pointedly ignoring him, "'you can't stand in the way of progress, so why don't you hitch a ride on it? "'Does anyone else want a train ride?' "'It gets so stuffy in here, I'm sure we don't want people thinking of us as being stick in the muds.' "'But we are sticking the muds,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'I treasure the fact. "'Nevertheless, it's time we looked the railway in the face. "'Mr. Stibbons will lead the way.' "'The wizards left the university in a small fleet of coaches, "'which caused quite a stir when they appeared at the ankh Morpork terminus. "'Stibbons, knowing his fellow wizards, "'had made arrangements beforehand, "'and a special train had been laid on for the occasion, "'with particularly well-cushioned seats.' "'You will, of course, travel first-class, gentlemen,' said the station-master, who had been well primed by Stibbons. "'But if you wish, some of you might be able to ride on a footplate.' He hesitated, and said, "'Although I'm not sure those robes would be safe.' The arch-chancellor burst out laughing. "'Young man, a wizard's robe is impervious to fire. Good grief, if they weren't, we'd be burned alive every day before elevenses.' Stibbons, who had already had several rides on Iron Gerda over the previous weeks, followed by some intense conversations with Dick Simnel, had got the hang of the business, and took some pleasure in seeing the best minds in the university coming to terms with their first railway ride. It was a short journey to Upunder and back, 
including a dinner at the halfway mark, which lasted longer than the train ride itself. On the homeward stretch, the chair of indefinite studies was allowed to operate the emergency brake, to the envy of the rest of the wizards, and there was a certain amount of waving of flags, blowing of whistles, and slamming of doors at each stop for the wizards to try their hands at. Eingerda was in full steam, and the fireproof wizards, taking their turn on the footplate, stared into the firebox and approved. Even Professor Rincewind, who spent most of the journey hiding under his seat, in the firm belief that locomotion was exactly the kind of thing that usually led to certain death, conceded that trains could come in very handy when one wanted to get somewhere, or, more importantly, away from somewhere quickly. Replete and tired on their way back to Ankh-Morpork, they considered this new form of locomotion as a phenomenon. The senior wrangler thought about objecting again, but was too full. Amazing! People waving at you as you go past, said Ridcully. I've never seen that before. Who'd have thought it? Machinery making people smile. What are you writing down, Mr. Stibbons? Blushing, Stibbons said, I like to spot an occasional train, you know, I'm just interested in them. It's like watching the future go past. The Arch-Chancellor smiled and said, Then perhaps we should be the ones who are minding the doors, not to mention the gap, because the future is coming down the track fast, and who knows what is going to arrive next. It was a wonderful sunny day. Skylarks sang in the deep blue sky. It was a great day to be alive. Moist, needing a change of air, walked away from the compound with a spring in his step, a little way along the railway track. And right there, on this perfect day, yes, there out of sight of anyone excepting, of course, the ambling Moist himself, on the rail that Iron Gerda would have to travel along as soon as she came round the bend onto the little incline leading to the station, were two small creatures. Rabbits, his common sense tried to tell him, plenty of them round here, even the compound was riddled with them, and for a moment the whole world stopped right in his face, leaving him spinning slowly in a little world of his own, looking out onto the real one. There were the main engine sheds, over there was the crowd queuing for their rides, and there on the track was the future of the railway. It was one perfect moment where time stretched out, and Moist the only witness to this terrible tableau. It was like a strange game of high-speed chess unfolding before his eyes. And then, suddenly, his legs took off from under him, and he ran and ran, too breathless to shout, towards the two children who had hunkered down with their ears pressed against the rails, giggling because the vibrations were at times funny and bouncy and loud, and right here, right now, and gone. Moist woke up which could be interpreted as a good thing. First time round, Iron Gerda was over him and he was dead, but his next careful waking was in a white room that smelled of camphor wood and other disinfectants, sharp and reassuring smells. Tangible proof that he had a nose at least, because he couldn't really feel anything else. After a while, subtle little noises grew into louder ones, coming closer and forming words, loudly reassuring and somewhat hearty words that crystallised into an individual in a white coat saying, "'Well, madam, he keeps going up and down, but with fewer downs and a welcoming parade of ups.' 
He's getting more stable all the time, and nothing's broken, although he's ruined a decent pair of boots. And may I say, madam, that even here in the hospital there are already people organising a whip-round to replace them. Moist made a mighty heave, fought his way out of unconsciousness, and arrived back in the here and now, a place where everything hurt. On the plus side, Adorabelle was looking at him, while looming behind her in a white coat was a large and expansive man of a sort that had played many rough competitive games when he was younger, and wished he could do so now, if only the belly was smaller and the limbs willing. Moist's wife was regarding her husband carefully, as if checking that all the bits were there in their rightful places, at which point the doctor grabbed his hand and boomed, "'Somebody up there must be watching over you, Mr. Lipvig. How do you feel?' "'As your physician, I must tell you that jumping in front of railway trains is not recommended by medical practitioners. But acts of mindlessly idiotic bravery most certainly are, and can be applauded.' Dr. Lorne looked carefully down at Moist and said, "'You don't know what you did, do you, Mr. Lipvig? Just you come along and we'll see if you can walk.' Moist could walk, and wished he couldn't. The whole of him felt as if it had been smacked very hard.' but the nurses helped him upright and led him carefully to the ward next door, which contained, as it turned out, among the noise, two families, and there were small children and parents weeping. Bits of the past slammed into place in Moist's memory and got bigger and more horrible as once again he felt the breath of the engine as it sailed over the top of him, a toddler under each arm. No, it couldn't have happened like that. Could it? But clamouring voices were telling him otherwise, with women trying to kiss him and holding up their offspring to do likewise, their husbands at the same time trying to shake his hand. Bafflement filled him up like smoke, and now in front of him Adorabelle was looking at him with a funny little smile, such as only husbands know of. When they were at last able to disembogue themselves of the crowd of happy parents and somewhat sticky children, Adorabelle still had her faint smile. "'Well, now, my dear, didn't you once say that a life without danger is a life not worth living?' Moist patted her hand and said, "'Well, Spike, I married you, didn't I?' "'You couldn't resist it, could you? It's like a drug. You're not happy unless someone is trying to kill you, or you're in the centre of some other kind of drama, out of which, of course, the famous Moist von Litvig will jump to safety at the very last moment. Is it a disease? Some kind of syndrome?' Moist put on his meek face, as only husbands and puppies can do, and said, "'Would you like me to stop? I will if you say so.' There was silence, until Adora Bell said, "'You bastard! You know I can't do that. If you stopped all of that, you wouldn't be Moist von Litvig.' He opened his mouth to protest, just as the door opened, and in came the press. William de Word, editor of the Ankh-Morpork Times, followed by a porter and the ubiquitous Otto Schriek, the iconographer. And because Moist would never stop being Moist von Lipwig until he died, he smiled for the iconograph. He reminded himself that this was only the start. All the rest would be along soon, but no matter. He had danced this fandango many times before, and so he maintained his best Boy Scout face and smiled at Mr. DeWord, who started off by saying, "'It appears that you are a hero again, Mr. Lipvig. "'The driver and the stoker say that you ran faster than they could break the train, "'picked up the children, and jumped to safety just in time. "'Safety. 
at that precise moment being under your iron girder. It was a miracle that you were there, wasn't it? And so the dance began. Not at all. We make a point of keeping an eye on the visitors at all times, of course. The children were outside the compound, and strictly speaking the responsibility of their parents, but we'll be putting up barriers along that stretch of the line immediately. You have to understand, people are flocking here. They seem to be irresistibly drawn by the novelty of live steam and speed. And a very dangerous novelty, would you not say, Mr. Lipvig? Well now, Mr. De Word, everything old was once new, and until explored was unfamiliar and dangerous. And then, as sure as night follows day, they become just part of the scenery. Believe me, sir, that'll happen here with the railway too. Moist watched the journalist, painstakingly taking down his words, and was ready when the man said, "'I've heard from elderly people all across the Stowe Plains who are frightened of the noise and speed. And the trains leave smoke and cinders. Surely that's dangerous for our fine city.' Moist flashed his grin once more, thinking, "'Here we go again.' "'This place you choose to call our fine city is almost all smoke and cinders, and a lot else besides.' The trials of Iron Gerda have impressed everybody with her ability to carry heavy loads safely and at speed. Let's not forget that speed is essential when dealing with certain goods. Your newspaper, for one. No one wants to get their news late. And there's my post office parcels for another. We can get your first printing on the breakfast tables at Stow Lat. And as for scaring the elderly, well, one old lady recently told me that we should have waited until all the old people were dead before starting up with the railway, and I think you'll agree that that might be a very long time. Moist saw the journalist's face break into a smile, and he knew he had a result. He continued, People often use the excuse that old people won't understand something when in fact they simply don't want it or understand it themselves. Actually, Old people can be quite gung-ho about risk and very proud of it. And here, for dramatic effect, he looked serious. Regrettably, prototype work cannot provide guaranteed safety. It's hard to make things safe until you know they're dangerous. Do you understand? I'm absolutely certain that one day the train will save many, many lives. In fact, I guarantee it. As soon as the excited press had got its quotes and pictures of the hero of the hour, and Moist had submitted to a final check by Dr. Lorne, he said goodbye to Adorabelle and caught a cab to the compound. Once there, he barged into Harry King's office without even knocking. "'There should have been somebody else on duty, Harry,' he shouted, banging a fist on the desk. "'If you have any sense, you'll put proper guards round the track close to the compound to keep an eye on people when the trains are running.' "'I pulled your chestnuts out of the fire this time,' he screamed. "'But I'll tell you this, Harry. "'A couple of dead toddlers in a front-page story "'would have shut the railway down before you hardly got started. "'Vetinari would do it, believe me. "'You know his distrust of mechanisms, "'and I doubt he'd lose much in the way of popularity "'if he told Mr Simnel to put his toys back in the box. "'It'd be a great shame, but people mustn't die "'just because of a bloody engine.' "'Moist stopped.' He was panting and out of breath, and Sir Harry King, whose expression had hardly changed during the diatribe, now had the face of flaming red. In the silence, Moist thought he heard a curious sizzle, like the sound made by Iron Gerda when she was relaxing after a heavy day on the straight and curves. You could perhaps call it a kind of metal purring, but it had now gone, 
leaving doubts that it had ever been there. Harry looked moist up and down and said gravely, They said you flew under the train holding two little kiddies in your arms, did you? You know, I have absolutely no idea. I did see the kids with their heads on the tracks, listening to the funny noises on the rails, and I distinctly remember myself saying, Oh, bugger! Then something whacked me on the side of the head, and I don't remember a thing until I woke up in the Lady Sybil on a bed, and that's the truth. I am a liar for the purposes of amusement, publicity, trivial one-upmanship, personal profit, and the gaiety of nations, but I'm not lying to you now. There was silence, broken when Harry said hoarsely, You know I'm a granddad, don't you? A little boy and a little girl, courtesy of my oldest. And I don't often shiver, my friend, but I'm shivering now. Harry stood up, with eyes running tears, and said, You're the man for this, Mr. Litvig, so you tell me what I should do, please. Moist hadn't expected this, but he managed to catch the metaphorical ball. Clean up your act, Harry, he said. Engineers and such like know all about hot steel, high speeds, and wheels spinning fast, right? For most people, exhilarating speed is a runaway horse. Many people get hurt in this city every year when dear old Dobbin the dray horse suddenly feels his oats and heads for pastures new down the middle of the road. My advice is to shut down the iron girder rides for a week for maintenance. Tidy up, keep all the sharp stuff out of the way, stick up some barriers and have a few lads wandering around in uniform looking like they mean business. You know the kind of thing. Make a show of being safe. And now Moist heard the little sizzle again, and it seemed to sizzle in his soul, filling him with ideas. And in the theatre of his head he sat up in the gods, watching the stage of his imagination, agog to see what he came up with next. It's not just around the compound that there could be incidents like this, Harry. We need to keep an eye on the whole line. Someone to spot if there are kids on the track, or cows, or a train going the wrong way. He saw Harry blanch at the thought of all the things that could go wrong, but he was in full flow now. They'll need a good view. Some kind of watchtower would do the trick, with a clax attached to signal to the drivers. Ask Dick. That brain of his is coming up with new designs faster than his hand can get them down on paper. And here's a tip. Do something about those greasy old cattle wagons you're running behind Iron Girder. They're OK for a circus ride, maybe, but all of your rolling stock should be as good as the special ones we're using on the Stolat line. Sizzle. Yes, more posh carriages for the knobs, and... Here Moist saw the money smile and continued, Here's a thought. For those who aren't quite knobs but aspire to be like them, well, why not give them carriages that are not quite so plush, but visibly better than the very cheapest coaches which are, perhaps, open to the weather? That would give them something else to yearn for, and you'll have made yet another money pump. Moist now found himself caught in the glare of one of Harry King's most dangerous expressions. Mr. Lipvig, damn me if you ain't a most dangerous man, yes indeed. You're inciting people to have ideas above their station, and that sort of thing makes people suspicious and anxious, and above all very, very nervous. To Harry's surprise, Moist almost sprang into the air, spinning, Yes, yes, that's the way, Lord Vetinari's way, too. He believes that people should strive to be better in every respect. I can see it now, Harry. Picture a young man taking his young lady on the train and hazarding an extra sixpence to go in the better-class seats. 
Well, he's no end of a swell, and he'll look around him and think, This suits me down to the ground, and no mistake, I could do with more of this. And when he goes back to work, he'll strive, yes, strive to become a better, that's to say, richer person, to the benefit of both his employer and himself. And not, of course, neglecting to thank the owner of the railway, to wit, your good self, who allowed him to have ideas above his railway station. Everybody wins. Nobody loses. Please, please, Harry, allow people to aspire. I mean, who knows? They might have been in the wrong class all this time. Your railway, my friend, will allow them to dream. And once you have a dream, you've got somewhere closer to a reality. Throughout all this, Harry stared at Moist as if he'd just seen a giant tarantula. But he managed to say, Mr. Lipvig, a little while ago you were under a railway engine with fifty tons of rolling stock going past your ears, and now you spring up like a jack-in-a-box full of vim and vigour and schemes. What is it you've got, and how can I get some of it? I don't know, Harry. It's just me being normal. You just keep going, whatever happens, and you never stop. It works for me. And remember, clean up your act, our act, to make sure that the public don't get caught up in the mechanisms. The sister state of Quirm comprised, like Ankh-Morpork, a major city, several theoretically autonomous satellites, each vying with all the others for advancement, any number of squabbling townships, all bloated with self-importance, and a vast number of homesteads, parishes, farms, vineries, mines, hamlets, bends in the road that someone had named after their dog, and so on. And indeed, so on again. Around the edges of the Ankh-Morpork hegemony, which, it has to be noted, included a certain amount of hinterland, as with most city-states, it was quite possible these days for a small farmer on the hypothetical outskirts of all that could be called Ankh-Morpork to lean over his own hedge and chat with a Quermian farmer who was most definitely in Quirm at the time, without in any way considering that this was a political matter. The conversation would generally be about the weather, the abundance or otherwise of water, and the uselessness of the government, never mind which kind, and then happily they would shake hands or give a little nod and one would go home to drink a pint of homemade beer after such a busy day, while the other would do likewise with a decent homemade wine. Occasionally the son of one farmer would go to the hedge and see the daughter of the other one, and vice versa, and that was why, in a few, but very interesting places along the boundary, there were people who spoke in both tongues. This sort of thing is something that governments really hate, which is a very good thing. Technically speaking, Quirm and Ankh-Morpork were bosom friends, after centuries of conflict, mostly about things that turned out to be inessential, inconsequential, untrue or downright lies. Yes, you used to need a passport to travel in either direction, but since Lord Vetinari had taken office, nobody really looked at them any more. Moist had been there many times in his younger days, and in different guises, and under different names, and on one very memorable occasion, a different sex. The jailers couldn't understand how he'd escaped until they realised they weren't getting their washing back. Moist mused for the moment as that triumph came back to him. It had been one of the all-time great scams, and although there had been a large number of other fruitful escapades, he had never dared try it again. The nuns would have got him, for sure. But now, as the coach to Quirm finally reached the border, the only obstacle was a gate, 
theoretically locked and manned by a couple of officers, one on each side. However, such was the nature of interstate relations that they were quite often asleep, or, if not sleeping, were happily cultivating their little gardens on either side of the border. Some might ask what was the point. Everybody smuggled, and, after all, the smuggling went both ways, and so a pragmatic approach was floating in the zeitgeist. And today, Moist had a list of people to see. Oh, yes, he always had a list. He knew that Querm itself desperately needed the railway, as it had lots of produce to sell or be left with heaps of stinking fish, and so Moist was expecting a happy week dealing with the lobsters. He knew he couldn't use that colloquial term around there, of course, but after all, the people of Querm called the people of Ankh-Morpork sphincters, mostly in fun. Mostly. But right now he was dealing with people far from the coast, who considered their tiny patches of ground to be sacred. Yes, they wanted the railway, but if it went across their land, they wouldn't have any land left that wasn't railway. Moist was assisted in his negotiations in Querm by acting Captain Haddock of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch, presently seconded to the Quermian force, who had learned the lingo in an Ankh-Morpork kind of way. Acting Captain Haddock explained the dilemma created by Quermian traditions of land ownership over a pint of very weak beer. It's all to do with something they call the patrimony. It means that all the kids have to get something when mum and dad pass over. A big farm might have to be split into two or even three or more so everyone can get their share. Even the government knows this is stupid, but no one in Querm takes any notice of what the government says. So, it's up to you, Mr Lipvig, to get them to understand. But that's it, I'm afraid. Well, Moist tried, he really did, and after a frustrating fortnight haggling over every handkerchief-sized plot, he was ready to give up and head back to Ankh-Morpok. Harry wasn't going to like this, he thought, and worse still, neither was Vetinari, but he could probably talk his way out of it. Possibly. His gloomy mood was lightened when he reached a small but prosperous estate belonging to the Marquis des Aix-en-Pins, a well-known wine-grower. The Marquis was one of the last landowners on Moist's list. He had married a girl from Ankh-Morpork and was apparently extremely keen to have his very fine wines conveyed to customers as soon as possible, with a minimum of jolting, which had a deleterious effect on the wine. Currently the coach journey, littered with potholes, required the wines to lie down in a dark, cool cellar to settle for months afterwards. The Marquis had invited Moist for lunch, which turned out to be something he called Fusion Cuisine, with pâté devoid of avec, a main course of lobster and mash, followed by a most excellent spotted dick, a combination of dishes that you would expect to live long in the annals of gastronomic infamy, but which wasn't too bad, especially when consumed in conjunction with the remarkably good house wines. The Marquis was young and forward-looking, and clearly taken with the idea of the railway, not only for the wine trade, but also as a means of bringing people together. He winked at his wife as he said so, with the definite implication that getting people together was something very close to his heart, and he believed that the more people knew about one another, the better they got along. His views on Querm's curious and slightly bucolic attitude to the division of wealth after the death of the parents were of great interest to Moist. Everyone wants to sell their wine and cheese and fish to Ankh-Morpork, that is certain, but nobody wants to lose land. We all like our slice of querm, its real, real estate, something you can pick up 
and crumble in your fingers, something that you can fight for. It's old-fashioned, I know, and of course its continued existence leaves the government exasperated, which, as a true son of Quirm, I consider perfectly acceptable. However, for you, my friend, this is difficult, because we don't sell our birthright unless, that is, the price is extremely high. And when the news gets out about the railway, the price will be extremely high. You will, as my wife says, have to pay Dolnenay. I think, my friend, you will have to find another route from here to Querm City if you want to get the job done before Les Poules Hurons des Dons. He hesitated for a moment and said, Come with me to the library. I want to show you some maps. In a large and ornate room, filled with the heads of many stuffed animals, or at least probably stuffed, and a stench of old formaldehyde, Moist poured over a large map which the Marquis had pulled out of an old chest. Pointing to what seemed to be a rather empty part of the map, the Marquis said, Most country here is worthless land, Maki all the way, nothing to mine except ochre, and precious little of that too. It's more or less a wasteland, covered in scrubs that would tear your boots off with nothing to induce people to be there. Badlands, you might say, home to rogues on the run, highwaymen, bandits, and occasionally smugglers, all of them extremely nasty and armed to the teeth. Oh, the government makes a play of getting rid of them every so often, but that isn't all. There are goblins, and they know nothing about land rights. 